Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537 is the voicemail number. Uh, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com is the email address. Um, Ratchet Book Club is how you can reach us on Twitter. Uh, you can leave a review for the show on Podchaser at Apple uh, Podcasts. Uh, on Stitcher and Podcast Addict. The best way to do it, though, I would say, is Podchaser because there you can review the show as a whole, but you can also review separate episodes, which I think is really cool. Um, if you wish to engage with podcasters that you like, I, I think that's the best way to go about doing it. Anyhow, today I am pleased to get the opportunity to read one of my all-time favorite books um it's a book i think it may have been one of the first books i read that taught me about racism where i didn't even mind it um and didn't really even notice it until like down near the midway through to the end of the book i read it when i was young initially um, I mean, I read other books that talked about racism, but they talked about it with such a heavy hand that at that age, it was just like, ugh, oh my God. There's this one book called Let the Circle Be Unbroken, and it should really be called Whooping Black People's Asses because it was about sharecroppers uh, in the South getting beat up and, and just maligned by white people all, all over the place. And it was a really good book. I'm never going to read it to y'all, but it was a really good book. I just won't do it, but it was a really good book. It's just that, nah, nah, nah. This book though, it's, it's really, uh, a delightful book. And, um, I've always loved it. I loved it so much that when I lost my copy, I said, fuck it, and walked into my high school library and stole their copy. And that's actually the copy that I now hold in my hands. Uh, so if you are the librarian at Thomas Stone and you're listening to this right now, leave a review. Um, but this book was actually written by one of my favorite uh, young adult authors, uh, Thomas Spinelli. Uh, he also wrote, uh, do the funky pickle <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's, we may get to that at some point, but with no further ado, Maniac McGee. <sighs> Before the story, they say Maniac McGee was born in the dump. They say his stomach was a cereal box and his heart was a sofa spring. They say he kept an eight-inch cockroach on a leash and that rats stood guard over him while he slept. They say if you knew he was coming and you sprinkled salt on the ground and he ran over it, within two or three blocks he'd be as slow as everyone else. That's what they say. What's true? What's myth? It's hard to know. Finsterwall's gone now. Yet even today, you'll never find a kid sitting on the steps where he once lived. The Little League field is still there, and the band shell. Cobble's Corner still sits on the corner of Hector and Birch. And if you ask the man behind the counter, he'll take the clump of string out of a drawer and let you see it. Gray girls in two mills still jump rope and chant, 
Maniac, maniac, he's so cool. Maniac, maniac, don't go to school. Runs all night, runs all right. Maniac, maniac, kiss the bull. And sometimes the girl holding one end of the rope is from the west side of Hector. And the girl on the other end is from the east side. And if you're looking for Maniac McGee's legacy or monument, that's as good as any even if it wasn't really a bull. But that's okay, because the history of a kid is one part fact, two parts legend, and three parts snowball. And if you want to know what it was like back when Maniac McGee roamed these parts, well, just run your hand under your movie seat and be very, very careful not to let the facts get mixed up with the truth. Chapter 1 Maniac McGee was not born in a dump. He was born in a house, a pretty ordinary house, right across the river from here, in Bridgeport. And he had regular parents, a mother, and a father. But not for long. One day his parents left him with a sitter and took the PNW high-speed trolley into the city. On the way back home, they were on board when the PNW had his famous crash. When the motorman was drunk and took the high trestle over the Schuylkill River at 60 miles an hour, and the whole caboodle took a swan dive into the water. And just like that, Maniac was an orphan. He was three years old. Of course, to be accurate, he wasn't really Maniac then. He was Jeffrey. Jeffrey Lionel McGee. Little Jeffrey was shipped off to his nearest relatives, Aunt Dot and Uncle Dan. They lived in Hollidaysburg, in the western part of Pennsylvania. Aunt Dot and Uncle Dan hated each other, but because they were strict Catholics, they wouldn't get a divorce. Around the time Jeffrey arrived, they stopped talking to each other. Then they stopped sharing. Pretty soon, there were two of everything in the house. Two bathrooms, two TVs, two refrigerators, two toasters. If it was possible, they would have had two Jeffreys. As it was, they split them up as best they could. For instance, he would eat dinner with Aunt Dot on Monday one Uncle Dan on Tuesday, and so on. Eight years of that. Then came the night of the spring musical at Jeffrey School. He was in the chorus. There was only one show and one auditorium. So Aunt Dot and Uncle Dan were forced to share at least that much. Aunt Dot sat on one side, Uncle Dan on the other. Jeffrey probably started screaming from the start of the song, which was Talk to the Animals. But nobody knew it because he was drowned out by all the other voices. Then the music ended and Jeffrey went right on screaming, his face bright red by now, his neck bulging. The music director faced the singers, frozen with his arms still raised. In the audience, faces began to change. There was a quick smatter of giggling by some people who figured the screaming kid was some part of the show. Some funny animal, maybe. Then the giggling stopped and eyes started to shift and heads started to turn because now everyone could see that this wasn't part of the show at all. That little Jeffrey McGee wasn't supposed to be up there on the risers, pointing at his aunt and uncle, bellowing out from the midst of the chorus, Talk! Talk, will you? Talk! 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 No one knew it then, but it was the birth scream of a legend. And that's when the running started. Three springy steps down the Rogers, girls in pastel dresses screaming, the music director lunging, a leap from the stage, 
out the side door and into the starry, sweet, onion grass-smelling night. Never again to return to the house of two toasters. Never again to return to school. Chapter 2 Everybody knows the maniac McGee, then Jeffrey, started out in Hallidaysburg and wound up in two mills. The question is, what took him so long? And what did he do along the way? Sure, 200 miles is a long way, especially on foot. But the year that it took him to cover it was about 51 more weeks more than he needed, figuring the way he could run, even then. The legend doesn't have the answer. That's why this period is known as a lost year. And another question, why did he stay here? Why two mills? Of course, there's an obvious answer that sitting right across the Schuylkill is Bridgeport, where he was born. Yet, there are other theories. Some say he just got tired of running. Some say it was the Butterscotch Crimpets. And some say he only intended to pause there, but that he stayed because he was so happy to make a friend. If you listen to everyone who claims to have seen Jeffrey Maniac McGee that first day, there must have been 10,000 people in a parade of fire trucks waiting for him at the time limits. Don't you believe it? A couple people truly remember, and here's what they saw. A scraggly little kid jogging towards him. The soles of both sneakers hanging by their hinges and flopping open like dogs' tongues each time they came up from the pavement. But it was something they heard that made him stick in their minds all these years. As he passed them, he said, Hi. Just that. Hi. And he was gone. They stopped. They blinked. They turned. They stared after him. They wondered. Do I know that kid? Because people didn't just say that to strangers out of the blue. Chapter 3 As for the first person to actually stop and talk with Maniac, that would be Amanda Bill. And it happened because of a mistake. It was around 8 in the morning and Amanda was heading for grade school, like hundreds of other kids all over town. What made Amanda different was that she was carrying a suitcase. And that's what caught Maniac's eye. He figured she was like him running away, so he stopped and said, Hi. Amanda was suspicious. Who was this white stranger kid? And what was he doing in the East End where almost all the kids were black? And why was he saying that? But Amanda Bill was also friendly. So she stopped and said, Hi, back. Are you running away? Jeffrey asked her. Huh? said Amanda. Jeffrey pointed at the suitcase. Amanda frowned, then thought, then laughed. She laughed so hard she began to lose her balance, so she sat the suitcase down and sat on it so she could laugh more safely. When at last she could speak, she said, I'm not running away. I'm going to school. She saw the puzzlement on his face. She got off the suitcase and opened it right there on the sidewalk. Jeffrey gasped. Books. Books, all right. Both sides of the suitcase crammed with them. Dozens more than anyone will ever need for homework. Jeffrey fell to his knees. He and Amanda and the suitcase were like rocks in a stream. The schoolgoers just flowed to the left and right around him. He turned his head this way and that to read the titles. He lifted the books on top to see the ones beneath. 
There were fiction books and non-fiction books. Who did it books and let's be friends books and what is it books and how to books and how not to books and just regular kid books. On the bottom was a single volume from an encyclopedia. It was a letter A. It's my library, Amanda Bill said proudly. Somebody called, you gonna be late for school, girl? Amanda looked up. The streets was almost deserted. She slammed the suitcase shut and started hauling it along. Jeffrey took the suitcase from her. I'll carry it for you. Amanda's eyes shot wide. She hesitated. Then she snatched it back. Who are you? She said. Jeffrey McGee? Where are you from? Weston? No. She stared at him, at the flap-soled sneakers. Back in those days, the town was pretty much divided. The east end was blacks. The west end was whites. I know you're not from the east end. I'm from Bridgeport. Bridgeport? Over there? That Bridgeport? Yep. Well, why aren't you there? It's where I'm from, not where I am. Great. So where do you live? Jeffrey looked around. I don't know. Maybe here? Maybe. Amanda shook her head and chuckled. Maybe you better go ask your mother and father if you live here or not. She speeded up. Jeffrey dropped back for a second, then caught up with her. Why are you taking all these books to school? Amanda told him. She told him about her little brother and sister at home, who loved to cram every piece of paper they could find, whether or not it already had type all over it. About the dog, Bow Wow, who chewed everything he could get his teeth on. And that, she said, was why she carried her whole library to and from school every day. First bell was ringing. The school was still a block away. Amanda ran. Jeffrey ran. Can I have a book? He said. They're mine, she said. Just to read, to borrow. No. Please? What's your name? Amanda. Please, Amanda. Anyone. Your shortest one. I'm late now, and I'm not going to stop and open up this thing again. Forget it. He stopped. Amanda! She kept running, then stopped, turned, glared. What kind of kid was this anyway? All grungy, ripped shirt. Why didn't he go back to Bridgeport or the West End where he belonged? Bother some white girl up there. And why was she still standing there? So what if I loaned you one, huh? How am I going to get it back? I'll bring it back. Honest, if it's the last thing I do. What's your address? 728 Sycamore. But you can't come there. You can't even be here. Second bell rang. Amanda screamed. World ran. Amanda! She stopped. Turned. She squeaked. She tore a book from the suitcase. Hurled it at him. Here! And dashed into the school. The book came flapping like a wounded duck and fell at Jeffrey's feet. It was a story of the children's crusade. Jeffrey picked it up. 
and Amanda Bill was late to school for the only time in her life. By the way, the book is old, so y'all gonna hear the pages turning. I can't do shit about it, just deal. Chapter 4. Jeffrey made three other appearances that first day. The first came in one of the high school fields during 11th grade gym class. Most of the students were playing soccer, but about a dozen were playing football because they were on the varsity and the gym teacher just happened to be the football coach. The star quarterback, Brian Dennehy, wound up and threw a 60-yarder to his favorite receiver, James Hands Down, who was streaking a fly pattern down the sideline. But the ball never quite reached Hands. Just as he was about to cradle in his big brown loving mitts, it vanished. By the time he recovered from the shock, a little kid was weaving upfield through the varsity football players. Nobody laid a paw on him. When the kid got down to the soccer field, he turned to punch at the ball. It sailed back over to up-looking gym classers, spiraling more perfectly than anything Brian Dennehy had ever thrown, and landed in the outstretched hands of still stunned hands down. Then the kid ran off. There was one other thing, something that all of them saw but no one believed until they compared notes after school that day. Up until the punt, the kid had done everything with one hand. He had to, because in his other hand was a book. Chapter 5 Later on that day, there was a commotion in the West End, at 803 Oriole Street to be exact. At the backyard of 803 Oriole to be exacter. This, of course, was the infamous address of Fensterwall. Kids stay away from fencer walls the way old people stay away from a Saturday afternoon matinee at a $2 movie. And what would happen to a kid who didn't stay away? That was a question best left unanswered. Suffice it to say that occasionally, even today, if some poor, raggedy, nicotine-stained wretch is seen shuffling through town, word will spread that this once was a bright, happy, normal child who had the misfortune of blundering on a fencer wall's property. That's why, if you valued your life, you never chase a ball in the Fensterwall's backyard. Fensterwall's backyard was a graveyard of tennis balls and baseballs and frisbees and footballs and model airplanes and one-way boomerangs. That's why his front steps are the only unsat-on front steps in town. And why no paper kid would ever deliver there. And why no kid on a snow day would ever shovel that sidewalk, not for a zillion dollars. So... It was late afternoon, and screams were coming from Finsterwalds. Who? What? Why? The screamer was a boy whose name is lost to us, for after that day, he disappears from the pages of history. We believe he was about 10 years old. Let's call him Arnold Jones. Arnold Jones was being hoisted in the air above Finsterwalds' backyard fence. The hoisters were three or four high school kids. This was one of the things they did for fun. Arnold Jones had apparently forgotten one of the cardinal rules of survival in the West End. Never let yourself be near fencer walls and high school kids at the same time. So, there's Arnold Jones, held up by all these hands, flopping and kicking and shrieking like some poor Aztec human sacrifice about to be tossed off a pyramid. No, no, please, he pleads. Please! So, of course... They do it. The high schoolers dump him into the yard. 
And now they back off, no longer laughing, just watching. Watching the back door of the house, the windows, the dark green shades. As for Arnold Jones, he clams up the instant he hits the ground. He's on his knees now, all hunched and puckered. His eyes goggle at the back door, at the doorknob. He's paralyzed, a mouse in front of the yawning mob python. Now, after a minute or two of breathless silence, one of the high schoolers thinks he hears something. He whispers, Listen. Another hears it. A faint, tiny noise. A rattling. A chittering. A chattering. And getting louder. Yes, chattering teeth. Arnold Jones' teeth. They're chattering like snare drums. And now, as if his mouth isn't big enough to hold the chatter, the rest of his body joins in. First, it's a buzz-like trembling. Then the shakes. And finally, it's as if every bone inside him is clamoring to get out. A high schooler squawks. He's got the Finster Wallies! Yeah, yeah, they yell and they stand there cheering and clapping. Years later, the high schooler's accounts differ. One says the kid from nowhere hopped the fence, hopped it without ever laying a hand on it to boost himself over. Another said the kid just opened the back gate and strolled on in. Another swears it was a mirage, some sort of hallucination, possibly caused by evil emanations surrounding 803 Oriel Street. Real or not, they all saw the same kid, not much bigger than Arnold Jones, raggedy, flap-soled sneakers, book in one hand. They saw him walk right up to Arnold, and they saw Arnold look up at him and faint dead away. Such a bad case of the Fincher Wallies did Arnold have that his body kept shaking for half a minute after he conked out. The Phantom Sumerian stuck the book between his teeth, crouched down, hoisted Arnold Jones's limp carcass over his shoulder, and hauled him out of there like a sack of flour. Unfortunately, he chose to put Arnold down the one spot in town as bad as Fincherwald's backyard, namely, Fincherwald's front steps. When Arnold came to and discovered this, he took off like a horsefly from a swatter. As the stupefied high schoolers were leaving the scene, they looked back. They saw the kid, cool times ten, stretch out on the forbidden steps and open his book to read. Chapter 6 About an hour later, Miss Valerie Pickwell twanged open her back screen door, stood on the steps, and whistled. As whistles go, Miss Pickwell's was one of the all-time greats. It reeled in every Pickwell kid for dinner every night. Never was a Pickwell kid ever late for dinner. It's a record that will probably stand forever. The whistle wasn't loud. It wasn't screechy. It was a simple two-note job. One high note. One low. To an outsider, it wouldn't sound all that special. But to the ears of a Pickwell kid, it was magic. Somehow, it had the ability to slip through the slush of five o'clock noises to reach its target. So, from the dump, from the creek, from the tracks, from Red Hill, in ran the Pickwell kids for dinner. All ten of them. Add that to the parents, Baby Dee, Grandmother and Grandfather Pickwell, Great Grandfather Pickwell, and a down-and-out taxi driver who Mr. Pickwell was helping out. The Pickwells were always helping out someone. All that, and you had what Miss Pickwell called her small nation. Only a ping-pong table was big enough to seat them all, and that's what they ate around. 
dinner was spaghetti. In fact, every third night dinner was spaghetti. When dinner was over and they were all bringing their dirty dishes to the kitchen, Dominic Pickwell said to Duke Pickwell, Who's that kid? What kid? said Duke. The kid next to you at the table. I don't know. I thought Donald knew him. I don't know him, said Donald. I thought Dion knew him. Never saw him, said Dion. I figured he was Deidre's new boyfriend. Deidre kicked Dion in the shins. Duke checked back into the dining room. He's gone. The Pickwell kids dashed out the back door to the top of Rako Hill. They scanned the railroad tracks. There he was, passing Red Hill, a book in his hand. He was running, passing the spear field now. And the Pickwell kids had to blink and squint and shade their eyes to make sure they were seeing right. Because the kid wasn't running the cinders alongside the tracks or the wooden ties. No. He was running, running, where the Pickwells themselves, where every other kid had only ever walked, on the steel rail itself. Chapter 7 When Jeffrey McGee was next spotted, it was at the Little League field in the park. A Little League game had just ended. The Red Sox had won, but the big story was John McNabb, who had struck out 16 batters to set a new 2 Mills LL record. McNabb was a giant. He stood five foot eight and was said to weigh over 170 pounds. He had to bring his birth certificate into the league director to prove he was only 12. And still, most people didn't believe it. The point is, most of the league was no match for McNabb. It wouldn't have been so bad if he had been a right fielder, but he was a pitcher. And there was only one pitch he ever threw, a fastball. Most of the batters never saw it. They just heard a whizzing past their noses. You could see their knees shaking from the stands. One kid stood there long enough to hear strike one go past, then threw up all over home plate. It was still pretty light out, because when there's a lot of strikeouts, a game goes fast. And McNabb was still on the mound, even though the official game was over. He figured he'd made baseball history, and he wanted to stretch it out as long as he could. There were still about 10 players around, Red Soxers and Green Soxers, and McNabb was making them march up to the plate and take their swings. There was no catcher. The ball just zoomed to the backdrop. When a kid struck out, he went back to the end of the line. McNabb was loving it. After each whiff, he laughed and bellowed the strikeout total. 26! 27! 28. He was like a shark. He had the bloodlust. The victims were hunched and trembling, walking the gangplank. 34. 35. And then, someone new stepped up to the plate. Just a punky, runty little kid. No green socks or red socks uniform. Kind of scraggly. With a book, which he laid down on home plate. He scratched out a footing in the batter's box, cocked the bat on his shoulder, and stared at McNabb. McNabb croaked from the mound. Get out of there, runt. This is a Little League record. You ain't in Little League. The kid walked away. Was he chickening out? No. He was lifting the red cap from the next batter in line. He put it on. 
He was back in the box. McNabb almost fell off the mound. He was laughing so hard. <laughs> okay, run. Number 36 coming up. McNabb fired. The kid swung. The batters in line automatically turned their eyes to the backstop where the ball should be. But it wasn't there. It was in the air, riding on a beeline right out to McNabb's head. The same line it came in on, only faster. McNabb froze, then flinched just in time. The ball missed his head, but nipped the bill of his cap and sent it spinning like a flying saucer out the shortstop. The ball landed in the second base dust and rolled all the way to the fence in center field. Dead silence. No one moved. McNabb was gaping at the kid, who was still standing there all calm and cool, waiting for the next pitch. Finally, a sort of grin slithered across McNabb's lips. He roared, Get my hat! Get the ball! Ten kids scrambled onto the field, bringing in the hat and ball. McNabb had it figured now. He was so busy laughing at the runt, he lobbed him a lollipop and the runt got lucky and pulled it. This time, McNabb wasn't laughing. He fingered the ball, tips digging into the red stitching. He wound. He fired. He thought, man. That sucker's going so fast, even I can hardly see it. Then, he was looking up, turning, following the flight of the ball, which finally came down to earth in deep left center field and bounced once to the fence. More silence, except from someone who yelped, Yep! And then caught himself. Ball! bellowed McNabb. He was handed the ball. He slammed his hat to the ground. His nostrils flared. He was breathing like a picador bull. He windmilled, reared, lunged, fired. This time, the ball cleared the fence on the fly. No more holding back. The other kids cheered. Someone ran for the ball. They were anxious now for more. Three more pitches. Three more home runs pandemonium on the sidelines. It was raining red and green hats. McNabb couldn't stand it. The next time he threw, it was right at the kid's head. The kid ducked. McNabb called strike one. The next pitch headed for the kid's belt. The kid bent his stomach around the ball. Strike two. Strike three took dead aim at the kid's knees. And here was the kid swooping back and at the same time swatting at the ball like a golfer teeing off. It was the craziest baseball swing you ever saw, but there was a ball smoking out the center field. Hold it, Runt, snarled McNabb. I can't pitch right when I got a whiz. The kids on the sideline made way as McNabb stomped off the field, past the dugout and into the woods between the field and the creek. They waited a pretty long time, but they figured... Well, McNabb's whiz probably would last longer than the regular kids. Might even make the creek rise. At last, McNabb was back on the mound, fingering the ball in his glove, a demon's gleam in his eye. He wound up, fired. The ball headed for the plate, and... What's this? A leg ball? It's got legs. Long legs pinwheeling towards the plate. It wasn't a ball at all. It was a frog, and McNabb was on the mound cackling away, and the kid at the plate was bug-eyed. He'd never...
nobody had ever tried to hit a fast frog before. So what the kid do? He bunted it. He bunted the frog, laid down a perfect bunt in front of the plate, third base side, and he took off for first. He was halfway to second before McNabb jolted himself into action. The kid was trying for an inside-the-park home run bunt, the rarest feat in baseball, something that hardly had ever been dealt with the ball, and never with a frog. And to be the pitcher who let such a thing happen, well, McNabb had already filled his strikeout record, fading to a mere grain in the sandlot of history. So he lumbered off the mound after the frog, which was now hopping down the third base line. As a matter of fact, it was so close to the line that McNabb had a brilliant idea. Just heard the frog across the line, it would be a foul ball. Or frog. Which is what he tried to do with his foot. But the frog, instead of taking a left turn at the shoe, jumped over it and hopped on towards third base. He was heading for the green field to left. And the runt kid, sounding like two runners with his flap soles slapping at the bottom of his feet, was chucking dust for third. One hope now. McNabb had to grab the frog and tag the runner out. But now the frog shot through his legs, over to the mound, and now towards shortstop, and now towards second. And McNabb was lurching and lunging, throwing his hat at the frog, throwing his glove. And everybody was screaming, and the kid was rounding third and digging for home and unbefroggable. The ball was heading back home, too. The ball, the batter, and the pitcher all raced for home plate, and it's the batter, the new kid out of nowhere, who crossed the plate first. At the same time, scooping up his book, twirling his borrowed red cap back to the cheering others, and jogging on past the empty stands and up the hill to the boulevard. McNabb grasping, croaking after him. Don't stop till you're out of town, runt. Don't let me ever catch you. And that's... How Jeffrey McGee knocked the world's first frog ball for a four-bagger. Chapter 8 And how he came to be called Maniac. The town was buzzing. The school was buzzing. Hallways, lunchrooms, streets, playgrounds, west end, east end. Buzzing about the new kid on town. The stranger kid. Scraggly. Carrying a book, flap soled sneakers. The kid who intercepted Brian Dennehy's pass the hands down and punted it back longer than Dennehy himself had ever thrown it. The kid who rescued Arnold Jones from Finsterwald's backyard. The kid who tattooed giant John McNabb's fastball for half a dozen home runs, then circled sacks on a bunted frog. No one knows who said it first, but someone must have. Kids gotta be a maniac and someone else must have said yeah regular maniac and someone else yeah and that was it nobody except Amanda Bill had any other name for him so pretty soon when they wanted to talk about the new kid that's what they called him maniac the legend had a name but not an address. At least, not an official one with numbers. What he did have was a deer shed at the Elmwood Park Zoo, which is where he slept his first few nights in town. What the deers ate, especially the carrots, apples, and day-old hamburger buns, he ate. He started reading Amanda Bill's book his second day in town and finished it that afternoon. 
Ordinarily, he would have returned it immediately. But he was so fascinated by the story of the Children's Crusade that he kept it and read it the next day. And the next. When he wasn't reading, he was wandering. When most people wander, they walk. Maniac McGee ran. Around town, around the nearby townships, always carrying the book, keeping it in perfect condition. This is what he was doing when his life, as it often seemed to do, took an unexpected turn. Fucking love this book. A few things. One, I fucking hate Pittsburgh. I don't even know if this is Pittsburgh. I don't. Except Pennsylvania. Fuck Pennsylvania. It's a staff record label and as a crew. Uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, only been there a few times. Uh, quite certain that it is just as bad as Boston as far as racism. Folks don't want to admit it. I'll admit it for all y'all. Fuck Pennsylvania. Nice people though. Amish. The Amish people. Nice people. The rest of them, not so much. But the Amish people are nice people. Second thing about this book. When... I first read this book, it inspired me to start carrying a suitcase full of books to school, just like Amanda. Yeah, I did that. My dad fucking hated it. I don't know why my dad fucking hated it, because he didn't fucking read, but he hated the fact that I would take a suitcase full of books to school every single day, and I literally did call it my library. And not only did I call it my library, I would check out books to other kids. The problem with doing that, because I had little cards, I had little note cards, and I would sign the note cards with the name of the book and the person who borrowed it and all that kind of stuff, and they would sign their name at the bottom. The problem with that is, I didn't get their address, and they didn't give a fuck. So, if they liked the book, or if they didn't like the book, guess what happened? They kept the book. There's nothing quite like finding out that somebody liked your shit so much that they lost it. And I lost a lot of books back then. And yet I kept taking the suitcase to school. It was a great time. Maniac McGee is such an amazing book. And I'm so glad y'all are here with me to read this. Let me know what you think. 916-633-1537. The email address is ratchetandratchet at gmail.com. The Twitter handle is Ratchet Book Club. Leave a review on Podchaser. uh, Apple Podcasts. Uh, Stitcher, uh, Podcast Addict, wherever you want. And at Podchaser, like I said earlier, you can leave a review for the show or for the episode. Y'all can let your kids listen to this one. Don't worry. I promise not to cuss a lot. Thank you so much for listening. I greatly do appreciate it. Y'all have a good day. I'll holler at you later. Peace. and outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. Don't know my name,